not without some justification, to be sure, of acting the great expert in front of the parents. So now the mother's advice was again reason enough for the sister to demand that they remove not only the wardrobe and the desk in line with her original plan, but all the furniture except for the indispensable settee. Her resoluteness was, naturally, prompted not just by childish defiance and the unexpected self-confidence she had recently gained at such great cost. After all, she had observed that while he needed a lot of space to creep around in, Gregor, so far as could be seen, made no use whatsoever of the furniture. Perhaps, however, the enthusiasm of girls her age also played its part, an exuberance that they try to indulge every chance they get. It now inveigled Greta into making Gregor's situation even more terrifying, so she could do even more for him than previously. For most likely no one but Greta would ever dare venture into a room where Gregor ruled the bare walls all alone. And so she dug in her heels, refusing to give in to the mother, who, apparently quite anxious and uncertain of herself in this room, soon held her tongue, and, to the best of her ability, helped the sister push out the wardrobe. Well, Gregor could, if necessary, do without the wardrobe, but the desk had to remain, and no sooner had the squeezing, groaning women shoved the wardrobe through the doorway than Gregor poked his head out from under the settee to judge how he could intervene as cautiously and considerately as possible. But, alas, it was precisely the mother who was the first to return, while Greta was still in the next room, holding her arms around the wardrobe and rocking it back and forth by herself, without, of course, getting it to budge from the spot. The mother, however, was not used to the sight of Gregor. It might sicken her. And so Gregor, terrified, scuttered backwards to the other end of the settee, but was unable to prevent the front of the sheet from stirring slightly. That was enough to catch the mother's eye. She halted, stood still for an instant, then went back to Greta. Gregor kept telling himself that nothing out of the ordinary was happening. It was just some furniture being moved. But these comings and goings of the women, their soft calls to one another, the scraping of the furniture along the floor was, as he soon had to admit, like a huge rumpus pouring in on all sides. And no matter how snugly he pulled in his head and legs and pressed his body against the floor, he inevitably had to own up that he would not endure the hubbub much longer. They were clearing out his room, stripping him of everything he loved. They had already dragged away the wardrobe, which contained the fret saw and other tools, and they were now unprying the solidly embedded desk where he had done his assignments for business college, high school, why, even elementary school. And he really had no time to delve into the good intentions of the two women, whom, incidentally, he had almost forgotten about, for they were so exhausted that they were already laboring in silence, and all that could be heard was the heavy plodding of their feet. And so, while the women were in the next room, leaning against the desk to catch their breath, he broke out, changing direction four times, for he was truly at a loss about what to rescue first, when he saw the picture of the woman clad in nothing but furs hanging blatantly on the otherwise empty wall. He quickly scrambled up to it, and squeezed against the glass, which held him fast, soothing his hot belly. At least, with Gregor now covering it up, this picture would certainly not be carried off by anyone. He turned his head toward the parlor door, hoping to observe the women upon their return. After granting themselves little rest, they were already coming back. Greta had put her arm around her mother, almost carrying her. "'Well, what should we take next?' said Greta, looking around. At this point her eyes met those of Gregor on the wall. It was no doubt only because of the mother's presence that she maintained her composure. Bending her face toward the mother, to keep her from peering about, she said, although trembling and without thinking, "'Come on, why don't we go back to the parlor for a moment?' It was obvious to Gregor that she wanted to get the mother to safety, and then chase him down from the wall. Well, just let her try. He clung to his picture, refusing to surrender it. He would rather jump into Greta's face.' 
but Greta's words had truly unnerved the mother, who stepped aside, glimpsed the huge brown splotch on the flowered wallpaper, and cried out in a harsh, shrieking voice before actually realizing that this was Gregor. Oh, God! Oh, God! With outspread arms, as if giving up everything, she collapsed across the settee and remained motionless. Hey, Gregor! the sister shouted with a raised fist and a penetrating glare. These were her first direct words to him since his metamorphosis. She ran into the next room to get some sort of essence for reviving the mother from her faint. Gregor also wanted to help. There was time enough to salvage the picture later, but he was stuck fast to the glass and had to wrench himself loose. He then also scurried into the next room as if he could give the sister some kind of advice, as in earlier times, but then had to stand idly behind her while she rummaged through an array of vials. Upon spinning around, she was startled by the sight of him. A vial fell on the floor and shattered. A sliver of glass injured Gregor's face, and some corrosive medicine oozed from the sliver. Greta, without further delay, grabbed as many vials as she could hold and dashed over to the mother, slamming the door with her foot. Gregor was thus cut off from the mother, who might have been dying because of him. He had to refrain from opening the door, lest he frighten away the sister who had to remain with the mother. There was nothing he could do but wait, and so, tortured by self-rebukes and worries, he began to creep about. He crept over everything walls, furniture, and ceiling. And finally, in his despair, when the entire room began whirling around him, he plunged down to the middle of the large table. A short while passed, with Gregor lying there worn out. The entire apartment was still, which was possibly a good sign. Then the doorbell rang. The maid was naturally locked up in her kitchen, and so Greta had to go and answer the door. The father had come. "'What's happened?' were his first words. Greta's face must have revealed everything. She replied in a muffled voice, obviously pressing her face into his chest, "'Mother fainted, but she's feeling better now. Gregor broke out.' "'I expected it,' said the father. "'I kept telling you both, but you women refused to listen.' It was clear to Gregor that the father had misinterpreted Greta's all-too-brief statement and leaped to the conclusion that Gregor had perpetrated some kind of violence. That was why he now had to try and placate the father, for he had neither the time nor the chance to enlighten him. He therefore fled to the door of his room, squeezing against it, so that the father, upon entering from the vestibule, could instantly see that Gregor had every intention of promptly returning to his room, and that there was no need to force him back. All they had to do was open the door, and he would vanish on the spot. But the father was in no mood to catch such niceties. "'Ah!' he roared upon entering, and his tone sounded both furious and elated. Gregor drew his head back from the door and raised it toward the father. He had really not pictured him as he was standing there now. Naturally, because of his new habit of creeping around, Gregor had lately failed to concern himself with anything else going on in the apartment, and he should actually have been prepared for some changes. And yet, and yet, was this still his father? The same man who used to lie buried in bed, exhausted, whenever Gregor started out on a business trip, who, whenever Gregor came home in the evening, would greet him wearing a robe in the armchair, who, being quite incapable of standing up, would only raise his arms as a sign of joy, and who, bundled up in his old overcoat, laboriously shuffled along during rare family strolls on a few Sundays during the year and on the highest holidays, always cautiously planting his cane, trudging a bit more slowly between Gregor and the mother—they were walking slowly as it was—and who, whenever he was about to say anything, nearly always halted and gathered the others around him. But now the father stood quite steady, in a snug blue uniform with gold buttons, such as attendants in banks wear, his heavy double chin unfurled over the high stiff collar of the jacket. From under his bushy eyebrows the black eyes gazed fresh and alert. The once dishevelled hair was now glossy, combed down, and meticulously parted. Removing his cap with its gold monogram, probably that of a bank, 
and pitching it in an arc the full length of the room over to the settee, he lunged toward Gregor, his face grim, his hands in his trouser pockets, the tails of his long uniform jacket swinging back. He himself most likely didn't know what he had in mind. Nevertheless, he lifted his feet unusually high, and Gregor marveled at the gigantic size of his boot soles. But he didn't dwell on this. After all, from the very first day of his new life he had known that the father viewed only the utmost severity as appropriate for dealing with him. And so now Gregor scooted away, stopping only when the father halted, and skittering forward again the instant the father moved. In this way they circled the room several times, with nothing decisive happening. In fact, because of its slow tempo, the whole business didn't even resemble a chase. That was why Gregor kept to the floor for now, especially since he feared that the father might view an escape to the walls or the ceiling as particularly wicked. Nevertheless, Gregor had to admit that he couldn't endure even this scurrying much longer, because for every step the father took, Gregor had to carry out an endless string of movements. He was already panting noticeably, just as his lungs had never been altogether reliable even in his earlier days. He was just barely staggering along, trying to focus all his strength on running, scarcely keeping his eyes open, feeling so numb that he could think of no other possible recourse than running, and almost forgetting that he was free to use the walls, which, however, were blocked here by intricately carved furniture bristling with sharp points and notches. When all at once a lightly tossed something flew down right next to him, barely missing him, and rolled on ahead of him. It was an apple. Instantly a second one flew after the first. Gregor halted, petrified. Any more running would be useless, for the father was dead set on bombarding him. He had filled his pockets with fruit from the bowl on the sideboard, and, not taking sharp aim for the moment, was hurling apple after apple. Those small red apples ricocheted around the floor as if galvanized, colliding with one another. A weakly thrown apple grazed Gregor's back, sliding off harmlessly. Another one, however, promptly following it, actually dug right into his back. Gregor wanted to keep dragging himself along as though this startling and incredible pain would vanish with a change of location, yet he felt nailed to the spot, and so he stretched out with all his senses in utter derangement. It was only with his final glance that he saw the door to his room burst open. The mother, wearing only a chemise, for the sister had undressed her to let her breathe more freely while unconscious, hurried out in front of the screaming sister and dashed toward the father. Stumbling over her unfastened petticoats as they glided to the floor one by one, she pressed against the father, flung her arms around his neck in total union with him, but now Gregor's eyesight failed entirely, and, with her hands clutching the back of the father's head, she begged him to spare Gregor's life.
Dawson, it's all Знаменитый тебе гон, 
быстро красавица Ей все это ой не нравится На него словно ругается а Угрожает кончердой А он у нас такой воинственный А он у нас один единственный Вечно лезет прямо в тряпку Безобразник и шалун Ох уж он, ох уж он Вечный мальчик великон Ох уж он, ох уж он Милый с вами великон Он достал электробритву и помчался с нею в битву Перебрился в торглобита И вернулся на лондон Айдаон, айдаон Наш любимый дикагон Вот какой, вот какой Айда, здравствуй, герой Это он, это он Это храбрый дикагон Это он, это он
не дурак Бол-бол он был холостяк Пил виски, ром и коньяк При этом делал вот так
This is European Indie Music Network, the house of independent artists. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify and other services. This is Formula Indie. Don't you think I'm handsome? 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 Don't you
handsome? Don't you think I'm handsome? Well, don't you? Hey, girl, don't you think I'm handsome? Don't you think I'm handsome? Don't you think I'm handsome? Well, don't you? Hey, girl, don't you think I'm handsome? Now let me start off by saying I am deranged. Your girl say I'm handsome. Boy, don't look at it, it's strange. I'm preeminent, pulling dames. They loving my swag and game. I feel so distinctive. Cause it's me, the girls that claim. They all say I'm cute, fine, and so.